Hello, GLC viewers. This is Brand coming at you again with another great Light of the Southwest. Very excited about today's guest. And I'll tell you what, uh, what a story that you're going to hear. Uh, he's one of your favorites. He's also one of mine. And, you know, during these times of confusion, uh, increasing darkness, the light gets lighter. And a voice <laughs> arises of truth, clarity, and inspiration. From a boy growing up in a Jewish home in Brooklyn, New York, to becoming a rabbi to the nations, Today, we have none other than Muddle Ballaston. How are you, sir, today? I'm doing just fine. It is uh, a good thing that I'm able to be with you, Brant, and uh, all the viewers at GLC. I've been uh, down to the Odessa studios a good four or so times and always enjoyed filming down there and opening up the scriptures. And even now, with uh, with this new technology and being able to to film from uh, the New York metro area, I'm happy to bring greetings to the viewers at GLC. Well, we're very happy to have you on the show. And of course, as Corey Adams uh, told me before I had the pleasure of, of scheduling getting to talk to you, uh, mm -hmm. you're one of the GLC favorites. And after listening to your story online and watching your lessons, I've got to tell you, you're one of my favorites as well. I also love your New York accent. Oh, you hear about that or not, but hey, forget about it, you know? <laughs> I, I used to have much stronger, and I used to say, you, you guys from Toy Toy Street. Uh, but, oh. uh, you know, I don't talk like that anymore. Uh, I got you, I got you. Well, you, you know, right now you're in New Jersey, uh, that yeah. you said before the show, and, you know, before we get into your incredible story, your great series and what's on the horizon, and your thoughts of what's happening in America and Israel... Tell us what's happening in your world where you are right now. How, how, how's the climate there in terms of uh, 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 emotional and political and <laughs> even well, weather-wise? I think that the, the lessons of the past year and a half between the election and the pandemic have uh, brought home the reality that uh, for believers, this is not our home. Uh, we were created for eternity as the book of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3. Uh, it is nice to be here. The world has its delights, but ultimately we have, as we say in Hebrew, we have a nefesh, we have a soul. And that soul was created to spend eternity with the Lord. And the more we see how mankind has messed things up here on this planet, the more we recognize that the only hope for mankind is the kingdom of God. And so we anticipate even more so all of the events that we've seen point to the soon coming of Messiah. And by soon, that could be in a week, that could be in 50 years. But, you know, God's understanding of time is not the same as ours. He, has the, he takes the long view of things. And, uh, but all, all of the signs are incontrovertible, to use a fancy word. And so we are more and more anticipating uh, the return of Messiah as that day draws near. And, you know, as he has said many, many times, fear not, you know, I have overcome the world. So Amen. be encouraged today. You know, every time I have the honor of, of hosting a lot of the Southwest, you, you know, model, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an encourager. That's all that I do. Some people think it's radio, television, music, speaking, whatever. You know, I'm just one thing, an encourager. I want to encourage yeah. you, viewers of GLC, uh, to, to take heart. You know, you've not been given a spirit of fear. And perfect love casts out all fear. That same perfect love uh, that is still available for you today, 
was available for metal when he was first discovering the Messiah on his own. And of course, if you go to YouTube or glc.us.com or even the GLC uh, uh, YouTube channel, uh, you can enjoy these lessons from this very special guest today. So again, thank you so much for being with us. I'd love to call you rabbi, but you're now one of my favorite teachers as well. Many people have been watching your teachings, uh, but they may not know your backstory. So if you would, let's dive into your story uh, for for our viewers today. Well, um, I was born in the Holy Land. Uh, That's Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) And, And in that Holy Land, I was told by my four grandparents, or three of them, uh, one of them uh, was deceased early, but my grandparents told me that nice Jewish boys don't believe in Jesus. Um, And the reason they said that is because all four of my grandparents were born into traditional Jewish homes in Eastern Europe at the turn of the century. So they grew up as Torah-observant Jews in uh, Jewish villages and shtetls, as we call them in Yiddish. And in those shtetls, one of the realities that they lived with was the fact that they were a minority. And as Jews, they were always subject to persecution. And so particularly um, in the years uh, 1903 to 1906, there were very horrible waves of persecution that dramatically affected my family. Uh, a little bit later on, my, my uh, grandmother's younger brother was hacked to death oh. in a persecution uh, that uh, occurred by, by individuals who imagined that they were Christians. This was in the Ukraine, and there was a lot of unrest uh, during those years, and people who identified with the large institutional churches somehow imagined that the Jewish people were their enemy. And so violent raids on Jewish villages were common. You see this depicted in Fiddler on the Roof. That was real. That was uh, wow. particularly my grandmother, Sarah's village in the Ukraine. So all four of them came to the United States to escape persecution. Uh, they established homes in Brooklyn. And uh, uh, into one of those homes, my father, Samuel Aaron Balliston, was born. And uh, he was the youngest of three children, very quickly here, and he was the free thinker. He was the first person in his family to ever go to college. Mm -hmm. And while his older brother and sister were much more religiously Jewish, kept the traditions, kept kashrut, kept uh, kosher, and uh, went to shul and on Shabbat, uh, for him, he was a bit of a rebel, and he was a bit of a free thinker. He imagined that uh, socialism would be the answer to mankind's ills. Later on, he became very disillusioned and realized that it wasn't. But into that atmosphere, I was always told that I could make my own choices. So even growing up in a traditional Jewish neighborhood, as I did, I had friends who were Orthodox. I had friends who uh, were Jewish and went in the opposite direction and became uh, followers of Eastern religions for a short period of time. Before that, too, disillusioned them. But so I was on a spiritual search, as were a lot of young Jewish people in metro areas in the late 70s. And that spiritual search 
led me to consider the claims of some of these Eastern religions. Mm -hmm. um, I had friends who became followers of various different Eastern gurus. They would drag me to their meetings in New York City. And I was told it's very simple to know the, the meaning of life. All you've got to do is dress in white. Then you <laughs> shave your head. Then you eat only vegetarian foods. You have to face India when you pray and you pray in Sanskrit. And if wow. you do all of those outward cultural things, I was assured by the Eastern religion people that I would know Nirvana. I would find the truth mm -hmm. of the universe. I was skeptical. <laughs> At the same time as that was happening, I had other Jewish friends, kind of like myself, who went in the opposite direction. They became ultra-Orthodox Jewish. And so they would drag me to their meetings in the, the next neighborhood over in Crown Heights, not too far from where I grew up. And they had a very simple formula. They said, you're a Jew. Here's what you need to do. You need to dress all in black, <laughs> like we do, with a long black coat. You need to have a big black hat. You need to have the the, the, the payas, the side curls, just like it says in the Bible. You should only eat kosher foods. You should face Jerusalem when you pray, and you pray in Hebrew. And if you do all of those outward things, you'll know the truth of the universe. So each of these two groups had a different set of cultural sorts of... Uh, traditions that I needed to adhere to right. to make their religion true. And it occurred to me that if God was out there over the universe, that he was God for all, not just if I dress in one color or the other color, if I face this city or that city, if he was God truly, then he was the God of all. So I had just about given up on finding that God when I admitted a very difficult fact to myself. The one thing in all of my spiritual search that I did not do is I did not dare check out the claims of Jesus. Right. Because, you know, in my neighborhood, there were only, you know, two types of people. There were synagogues and there were Roman Catholic churches. Right. And um, from what I had heard and from the mouths of some of my Roman Catholic friends, they didn't really like the Jews. They had been taught that somehow... The Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And this was something that, you know, even as far as uh, 15, 20 years ago, you would hear. And so I just divided the world into two, two groups. There was them and then there was us. Right. So it seemed to me that because all of my friends who believed in Jesus were Italian, and I was <laughs> not Italian, that maybe I wasn't allowed to believe in Jesus because I wasn't Italian. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me that many other people believed in Jesus. Right. And so at that point, I said, you know, I've got to be honest with this and try to find out, was Jesus a Jew? Right. So very simply, went to the Brooklyn Public Library because we didn't have a, a complete Bible in our house. We have, we have a Jewish Bible, which is right. the Old Testament. And so I opened the Bible in the public library, a full Bible. And I open up to the first book of Matthew, the first uh, book of, I'm sorry, the New Testament, mm -hmm. the book of Matthew. And the first verse I read in the New Testament says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So three people are mentioned in this 
first book of the New Testament, and all three of them, Abraham, David, and Jesus, mm -hmm. they're all Jewish. Right. So as I continue to read, I wasn't reading a Roman Catholic story. I was reading the story of a Jewish boy born into a Jewish village, uh, born of a Jewish woman who right. grew up going to synagogue and one day walks into that synagogue in his hometown. It's recorded Luke 4, and right. he reads a prophecy from Isaiah, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, I am the Messiah. Right. And, of course, a very, a very typically Jewish thing then occurs in that synagogue. An argument breaks out. <laughs> <laughs> you see, because whenever you have two Jews, you have three opinions. Uh, <laughs> and that's just the reality of, of the Jewish community. Everyone's got an opinion. We, we would right. say in Yiddish, everyone is a maven. Everyone we we have to debate, right? You have to. Yeah, they have to right. debate. And finally, uh, you know, some of the people thought he was the Mashiach, the Messiah, but the majority said, no, he's not. And so the majority tried to grab him and throw him off the, the mountain. And uh, he just parted ways and, and went through their midst. And so I came to recognize that Jesus was a Jew. And the more I read in both my, my own Bible, my Old Testament, my Hebrew scriptures, we don't call it the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew scriptures, we call it the Torah and the Tanakh. The more I read, the more it was evident to me that if Jesus was not the Messiah of Israel, then there would never come a Messiah because he fit every one of the prophecies related to the first arrival of the Messiah. Wow. And so I prayed to receive Yeshua, or Jesus, as my Messiah. His original name was Yeshua. And uh, this was in the late 1970s. I was 21 years old. And uh, I came to a born-again saving faith that Jesus was the Messiah. And very soon, the Lord brought into my pathway other Jewish believers Wow. Uh, the, the late 70s in New York City w was a time where large numbers of young Jewish people were coming to Saving Faith, uh, forming fellowships, meeting each other in uh, Bible-believing congregations. And so I quickly grew in the Lord and recognized that uh, there was a special task for me. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> you, you know, uh, Muddle... Um... Also in your testimony, when, when people encounter your testimony uh, on YouTube and other sure. places online, you mentioned the fact that your, your grandfather had told you growing up that the New Testament was kind of a textbook on how to persecute Jews. And, and, yes, and, and that, yeah. that, that sort of statement is, was very common right. in the older generation of Jews because put yourself in their place for a minute. All that they saw in most places in Europe, now I realize there were exceptions, but you see most Jewish people in Europe, um, the, the just uh, numbers-wise, lived in Eastern Europe. Right. And there are two predominant churches in Eastern Europe, neither of, of which um, value the scriptures over tradition. Listen, I know that there are many believers in every church. I don't disparage that. I don't uh, try to say one church is better than another. But if a church values tradition over the word of God, then that's a problem. 
Right. And in these two very large institutional churches, these denominations in Eastern Europe, uh, these were the towns in which Jewish people lived. And both of those church traditions blamed the Jewish people, particularly for the death of Jesus, fully ignoring that the scriptures say no, no, no human group was responsible, that it was the plan of God to bring him to the cross so that he would serve as an atonement. But they ignore that, and instead, in a very human, sinful sort of way, they seek to place blame. And ultimately, that would work its way out as violence against the Jewish people. And so my grandparents said, well, this is their book. And so the stories, and you know, in Eastern Europe, they'd have all kinds of rumors and, and tall tales. And so they said, if you just, if you just touch a New Testament, your fingers would, your fingers would burn <laughs> in the place where you touch. That's what they would tell the little Jewish kids because, wow. it, you know, we'd be, oh, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't, wouldn't touch the New Testament. So it was a very effective sort of scare tactic. They knew that wasn't true, but right. they just wanted to keep us away because, again, put yourself in their in their place. Right. All that they had experienced was not the love that is there from the person of Jesus. Right. But rather a very distorted um, and very dysfunctional form of Christendom that they were under the thumb in the, those various countries in Eastern Europe. So that was their experience. Right. I was warned by my grandparents not to go near churches. And uh, by the time I came to faith, my grandparents had departed, but my father was very skeptical, and my father was absolutely convinced that I had joined a cult. Uh, and as was common in the late 70s, there were a lot of Jewish young people joining cults. Right. And But I said, no, Pop, I'm staying. He said, where are they taking you? Have they emptied your bank account, and will I ever <laughs> see you again? That's what he said. And, and, the, and the, so those pop, are valid fears. Those are those right. were, especially in the late seventies, when all of a sudden Jewish kids from Brooklyn would disappear and turn up in a commune in Oregon in the desert someplace, wearing orange, <laughs> and uh, shaking and, tambourines in the airports, it, and exactly throwing <laughs> flowers. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely true. But you, but your grandfather, had, you know, he had valid concerns, and you know, I, I just came back from Egypt, Muddle. Yes. Uh, where we, we minister to widows and orphans. And there is a price to pay if you become a Christian. Yeah, uh, yes. uh, in, in some cases, very severe. Uh, yes. You know, within 24 hours, you're, you're, you're tattooed with a crusader cross. You're moved to garbage city. You eat the trash. You drink the trash. You wear the trash. And before this wonderful president they have now, Al-Sisi, uh, you were hunted down like an animal. And the right. unspeakable done to the women, and and you were killed, uh, and now there's freedom under President Sisi uh, yes. in Egypt. Wonderful president, in my opinion. But you know, just as there's a price to pay in various parts of the world, there was a price to pay for a Jew to convert as well, because the synagogue was the center of their life. You know better than I do, and yes. so it, it wasn't just say a prayer and you might catch flack from Uncle Tony. Uh, it, it was you were losing uh, literally your existence in the eyes uh, of your family many times. Sometimes there's even a funeral held for you uh, among that. But also, you know, I, I graduated Bible college as well, sir. And, and, you know, we learned about Martin Luther, all the good stuff. 
But unfortunately, a lot of believers do not realize, uh, just as they don't realize that Jesus, Yeshua, is Jewish, they also did not realize that the writings of Martin Luther, when he wrote about the Jews and their lies, was used by Hitler uh, yes. to per persecute the Jews. So, folks, it's important to understand where people are coming from uh, and, and their background. But your father, your grandfather, had had a lot of concerns in addition to the to the LSD uh, craziness happening mm -hmm. in the 70s. And, and before I ask you this next question, sure, uh, uh, viewers, go to your screen if you would. Daniel, could you put that up for GLC? You know, when I first came on. Uh, I said that, welcome to the new GLC. Well, it is the new GLC because it, it, it's returning to the original vision, but it's also new faces and familiar faces. Folks, talk about a comeback. Uh, you can give online to glc.us.com. You can give by mail. You see it right there on the screen. And there's also different giving levels as well. A raindrop, one to 30 bucks. That's what you spend on junk food in one day. Water bearer, 30 to $75. Operations, 75 to 150 a month, and growth, 150 or more a month. So you know what, folks? Get behind there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to go above and beyond. Uh, you know, we spend so much money on things. You know, it's so easy to spend $150 a week on junk food. How much more important is it to invest in fertile soil uh, with, with spreading the message of Jesus all over the world and supporting the broadcasting of incredible teachers like Muddle that we have on today. And so get involved with GLC. God's doing some new things. He always is. And uh, I'm so excited to see this resurgence, this, this bounce, bouncing, whatever you call it, you know, this rising up of people that are supporting the work. You know what? Our enemy is the prince of the air, and he ravages the, the peoples of the world to the internet, the radio, television. Sounds superstitious? No, it's not. Look at the darkness that has been happening in America because the mainstream media focuses on that instead of focusing on righteous things, focusing on the good cops, focusing on the racial harmony that we do have in this country. You know, And so all that to say is uh, thank you for supporting GLC. Thank you for turning off the lies for a while and turning on the truth with God's Learning Channel, GLC. Now back to you, uh, sir, Rabbi. Uh, I, I, want, I want to ask you a question if you would. You know, the, just as there are many misconceptions uh, towards Christians from the Jewish community, as there should be, uh, there are also many misconceptions about Jews that you have cleared up in your teachings as well. And so, viewers, you've heard his backstory, such an incredible story. But also, if you would, sir, would you talk about some of the misconceptions that people have about the Jewish community in this growing anti-Semitic cultural right now? Yes, we live in a world where um, media, especially online media, which is a growing percentage, they are uh, they make their money by clicks. Right. And so there's an old adage in the news business that says, "If it bleeds, it leads." Right. And so uh, oftentimes that means that all of us, including believers, are we have a parade of headlines in front of us that are intended to capture our attention, 
make us click on something, make us buy something, rather than inform us. And so, for instance, most recently in the conflict in Israel, um, it was very common with some news media, especially the, the news media in Europe, where they would simply watch passively as the terrorist organizations in the Gaza Strip, organizations like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they would send over rockets toward Israeli villages. These are not military installations. They, yeah. they would target Israeli towns where families live. And this would go on two or three days a week where there would be three or four rockets that would be launched from Gaza toward Israel. And it's, it's only you know five, six miles and it's, the rocket goes over the border and crashes into someone's house or someone's field. They sent over incendiary balloons, which actually burned hundreds and hundreds of acres of good, important farmland. I mean, in Israel, uh, farmland is at a premium because there are so many desert areas. This went on for months and months and even years. Occasionally, Israel would do a precision strike if they could see a team launching a rocket uh, they could actually launch a quick precision strike with helicopters. But for the most part, these attacks were getting worse and worse. So after years of watching this and the news media not reporting it, finally Israel warned them, the attacks got worse, and so Israel finally retaliates. Wow. They didn't invade Gaza. Instead, they used precision uh, uh, missiles with their incredible intelligence Right. to target only the buildings that held terror institutions. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, the media in Europe and some of the liberal media in America react and they say, look what's happening. Mm -hmm. The poor civilians in Gaza are under Israeli attack. Uh, and this was a very misleading headline because for two or three years, the terror organizations in Gaza were shelling Israel and trying to launch terrorist attacks against Israel, trying to cross the border. Right. And Israel just kept petitioning the United Nations, petitioning this one, and nothing was done. And so there is a lot of simply lying propaganda right. that is put in front of our eyes. We love the people of Gaza. They are created in the image of God. They are not our enemies. The Arab people are not the enemies of the Jewish people. But rather, there are terrorist organizations that have taken over Gaza, right. that uh, have really thwarted the will of many people there who want to live in peace. And so recognize that Israel is a bastion of democracy. The latest election in Israel, <laughs> the fourth election, uh, they have a a very vigorous democratic system right. where uh, they have elections. And the elections, the last three, were basically to a standstill. It was an absolute even match between Likud and uh, the coalition. Right. And so they had a fourth election. And finally, uh, we have Naftali Bennett, who is now uh, uh, prime minister. Uh, and so we recognize that Israel is a democracy. They have very high-level contacts with the American intelligence community. Dozens and dozens of attacks upon Americans have been thwarted, have been stopped, because Israeli intelligence does an incredible job yes, they do. of getting into the Muslim world and finding out um, about this. I just I can't say too much 
about this next thing because I know something that's kind of uh, secret, but there are people in Israel who know Arabic. They are Jews who come from Arabic-speaking countries, and they are able to listen in to some of the military communications in Arabic. Right. And oftentimes they will find out ahead of time what some of the plans are. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though the, the Muslim countries don't know this. They do. It's a cat and mouse game of trying to evade. Mm -hmm. But because of those early warnings that Israel has given to the United States, particularly in areas like Iraq and other sensitive areas of the world, mm -hmm. literally hundreds and hundreds of American lives have been saved by cooperation with Israel. And so the money that we uh, we spend uh, to help build up the Israeli military is actually money spent in the United States. Uh, you, yes, it's, it's appropriated by Congress, but then the military hardware is made here in America, employing right. Americans in American factories before that military hardware is sent overseas to Israel. So it's a it's a very good return on the dollar, in my view. Well, it, it's a better return on on the dollar than sending a pallet full of cash to Iran <laughs> to fund terror. That was an abysmal mistake. Or sending seven billion dollars to the Muslim it, Brotherhood it, in Egypt it to terrorize really, those beautiful Egyptian people. You know, brother, Egyptians are not is, Arabs. Yeah, Egyptians are not Arabs, and so yeah, the, yeah go ahead. This is all true. Well, you know, and again, it's important for people to know. Uh, uh, mainstream media is not your friend, folks. I know. I was in it. Uh, <laughs> I was a counterterrorism reporter. And I, I know very well about Obama's Muslim Brotherhood and ISNA and CARE in the White House. But people didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to offend with the truth. But what happens when the truth saves your life? You know, people do not know that Muslims and Christians and Jews live in peace together in harmony in parts of Israel. Did you know that? I bet you didn't know that. Or this challenging the legitimacy of the Jewish people in Israel. You know, Muddle, you have addressed a conspiracy theory that's been going around uh, claiming that the Jews aren't true blood Jews, yeah. uh, but instead are from, uh, I believe, Russia. W would you speak on that during this time? The people are trying to justify in their minds thousands of rockets flying across the border to civilian targets. They're trying to justify that uh, in, in, in uh, silly conspiracy theories like the one you're about to hear about. America wouldn't put up with that, uh, with all those rockets coming you know, from the southern border. We would take care of the problem pretty fast. Well, I'd like to say that under this administration, not so sure. But uh, could you speak to that, that uh, popular and, uh, theory that is trying to discredit the legitimacy of the Jews and Israel. There is a conspiracy theory that goes around on some very disreputable websites that somehow states that the, the Jewish people of today, particularly the Jewish people who, whose ancestors spent a few hundred years in Europe, that somehow they are not blood Israelites, that somehow they are descendants of some group called the Khazars, who converted in mass around the year 900 BC, and that all uh, Jewish people had spent time in Europe are descendants of that. Well, the, the, first of all, the history um, completely falls apart. The Khazars were a relatively small tribe uh, compared to the mass of Jewish people. 
if if even half the Khazars had converted and they did not, the literature we have basically indicates that maybe 10% of the Khazars converted to Judaism. Uh, that 10% would have constituted less than 2% of the total number of Jews in Europe around the year 900 to 1000 BC, less than 2%. Uh, so so it's, it is simply not true that Jewish people of European descent, like myself, were descended from Khazars. Basically, we are descended from people who left the land of Israel um, as a result of persecution anywhere between the years, literally 70 AD, when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, they took they took um, 100,000 slaves to Italy, some of whom their descendants still live in southern Italy. Uh, large numbers of Jews would then leave. And there were already Jewish communities in Europe uh, in 70 AD who were able to ransom those Jews out. And so over the years, uh, I, was in, I was in Budapest, Hungary. I was in Prague, uh, Czech Republic uh, in 2018, 2019. And I heard from local historians, we did a walking tour, historic tour, using a local guide, speaking English, talking about the Jewish community, particularly in Budapest. Turns out that there were Jews in Budapest that they have records of by the year 500, 600 AD. Oh, yes. So long before the, the so-called Khazars converted this small group, there were Jews in Budapest. So there are large numbers of Jewish people who made their way out of Israel, went to Europe in order to escape violent persecution. So they are blood related to Jews of the Middle East. And here's the second proof. It's in the DNA. Yes. Science has now firmly established that, for instance, Jewish people who, whose ancestors spent several hundred years in Europe, Right. who have priestly names like Levine or Cohen. Uh, there are a number of others, uh, Levine, Leventhal. When they test the men from that subgroup and they're looking for a certain chromosomal marker that is common across the priestly clans of Sephardic Jews, Sephardic Jews and Mizrahi Jews, Mizrahi Jews particularly, are Jews who have never left the Middle East. If, you know, 120 years ago, if you would have gone to Jordan or Iraq or Turkey or Syria or Egypt, mm -hmm. you would have found hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews right. who had been living there for over 2,000 years. The Jewish community in Damascus, the Jewish community in Aleppo was over 2,000 years old when they tested those Mizrahi Jews who have never left the Middle East and they went to their Kohanim, to their priests, they're looking for this certain chromosomal marker, they found it in abundance. When they tested men with those same sorts of priestly names who were in Germany or Poland and had been there probably for about a thousand years, right. they found the same chromosomal markers. And so literally, that's how the DNA has gone. It's gone from Israel into wherever Jews have gone in the world. So the conspiracy theory about the Khazars is simply an excuse to find right. something to pin on the Jewish people. And it's nonsense. It's all political. It's a, 
we 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 need to we need to really not have our eyes uh, hijacked right. by people who are able to make a video now. It doesn't take a lot of, of talent these days to make a convincing video. <laughs> you know, all the equipment has gone down in price. You can you can put your video on YouTube, and if you do a good enough job, and if you have a nice radio announcer's voice, oh yes, welcome, <laughs> you welcome can, to anti-Israel news. Yeah, and right. it, you can make it sound legit when it's not. Well, and, and you know, again, perception's reality, and <laughs> you know, more people need to understand. You need to read a history book and stop reading your yeah. phone. Uh, you know, uh, gosh, thirteen years ago, I could take you and put you in any setting I wanted to with my laptop and how much more uh, deceitful can it be now that's why we're producing positive media you know the Bible calls Lucifer the prince of the air and he is but we know the king of the air and this network glorifies him so when you put your finances into an anti-American anti-Christian anti-everything and you invest in, in, in situations that are everything vile, mm-hmm. then what you put out is what you give back. That's a universal law, no matter how religious you are or mm-hmm. not, no matter what religion uh, you follow or not, you will reap what you sow. That is why I'm seeing people being blessed. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to this, you know, Psalm 91 says, send me $9,100. I'm not going to even do that. <laughs> We're not going to go there. But you know what? When you put your... Uh, money, uh, where your treasure is, right? Where your, there your heart will be also. When you put your finances into positive media that is going out of the airwaves, not surrendering a, a, a license or not surrendering a signal uh, to this communist Marxist bot uh, rhetoric that we see everywhere, but instead investing in the truth uh, so that teachers uh, like Muddle can continue to reach the corners of the earth and continue to reach local television and all the cable channels that you experience GLC on. That's why it's so important. Daniel, would you put that back on the screen? And thank you so much, Rabbi, for, for being on the show. We, we have, have some, some more to go. Daniel, if you put that graphic on the screen, we want to encourage our viewers to get involved in something great, something uh, uh, bigger than yourself. glc.us.com slash give. Or, this, or send to the, to the P.O. box. I'm not even going to ask you to send a certain amount. I'm going to hope that you will be inspired to put your money where your mouth is. You believe in America. You believe uh, in pro-family, pro-faith, pro-law enforcement, pro-veteran. Well, it's your chance to put your money where your mouth is. I want to encourage you in all respect to do that. It takes finances to do this, folks. You know, I, I didn't drive... Uh, what will be a seven-hour drive day today as a volunteer because I was bored. I came here as a volunteer because I believe in what's happening here at GLC. And I'm honored to even be involved at all. I'm honored to talk to, to great men uh, like Muddle and, and, and teachers that inspire people and speak the truth. So it's so important that people know the truth with the time we have left. Don't be afraid. You're seeing the Bible prove true. Archaeology every day is proving the Bible true. World news every day, as, as one-sided as it is, is still proving the Bible is true. And some way, somehow, here you are 
in what I believe in the greatest time in our history. You think you were born as an accident? You think you were born just to pay bills and work a job till you die? You think that's the extent of your destiny? No, it's not. When David said to God, my days were written in your book before I was born, it wasn't poetry. It's the truth. What you've got to do is stop the world, stop the madness and the nonsense, move aside all this, all this mental clutter, this fog of anti-Semitism, this darkness, move it aside and ask yourself, what do I know? I know that Jesus is Lord. I know that Yeshua is Lord. I know that God is God of the universe. And I know that he has a plan for me. What's his plan? To help him accomplish his plan. What is his plan? For no man to perish, but for every man to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's it. Your tragedies, your talents, your story, your inspiration, your successes. Those are gifts to help him accomplish his plan for every man to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's people like this brother here that is speaking that truth all over the world. And so we're so happy that you do. You know, you've, you've told your story, Rabbi. You've, 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 you've touched on the misconceptions. You've touched on some of the conspiracies trying to explain away the legitimacy of Israel. Sure. Even though archaeology uh, continues <laughs> to prove it right, even though history continues yes. to prove it right, it's humanly impossible for the Messiah to predict the fall of Jerusalem. <laughs> and it happened in 70 AD. That was one of the things that, that uh, touched on your heart, that, that, that inspired yes. you. Uh, but you also said something in your story too, Rabbi, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that the Messiah had to appear. He had to suffer before the destruction of the temple. For those who, who do not have a faith background, uh, would you touch on that, that, that moved you sure. as well? Oftentimes I'm challenged by people in the uh, rabbinic community, in the traditional Jewish community. You know, how do you know that Jesus is the Messiah? What, what's the proof? And so I will take them to a very simple passage, and that's in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 9. It doesn't require any Hebrew knowledge or anything, any fancy knowledge to, to read the passage in, in, he, in Daniel chapter 9, and it simply says this. It says, uh, you are to know um, and discern from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It shall be built again. Um, then in verse 26, then afterward, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. And then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so I'm, I'm just taking a little bit of a piece there. But if you look at the, that Daniel 9 passage, it is referring to a, a date for the coming of the Messiah. But even putting aside math, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, so math is not my forte. <laughs> but here, here are the three points. The Messiah appears, and it uses the Hebrew word for Messiah. For It's the Hebrew word Mashiach. It uses that word twice. The Messiah appears. Then the Messiah is killed. 
not that he simply dies, but the Hebrew word there is that someone else causes his death. And finally, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. The Messiah appears, the Messiah is then killed, and then the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. Well, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 A.D. 70. That meant that the Messiah had to have appeared and have to have been killed before 70 A.D. So, simple question. What Jewish man lived, was killed, and died before 70 A.D.? That met all the requirements that the Messiah had to, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he would die as a substitutionary death, and that then after his death, the temple would be destroyed. Well, it had to have happened before 70 AD. My statement is there was only one Jewish man who appeared, who was killed, all before 70 AD that met all those requirements and all the evidence points to Yeshua of Nazareth. And beside that, after 70 AD, the Messiah had to come before 70 AD. So there can't be another Messiah. So either Jesus was the Messiah or the entire enterprise is nonsense. There will never be a Messiah. It's a very clear passage to understand in the Hebrew. There's really not a whole lot of different ways to translate it. Uh, People will go through mental gymnastics to try to get around the simple meaning of the text. But the text is clear. The Messiah lived, was killed, all before 70 AD. It all points to Yeshua, Jesus. You know, we're, we're told to follow the science. Well, it's humanly impossible for over 300 prophecies to be fulfilled by one man in his lifetime. You know, uh, that miracle of fulfillment of prophecy that shined the light in your heart, Buttle, it also had an impact on someone that you love very much that I believe sitting in, in an assembly, you were asked to identify yourself as believers in Yeshua and someone sitting next to you raised their hand that you had no idea. Would you tell us about that? Well, there were a number of a number of events that actually correspond to that. I think probably one of the most dramatic was that um, I was when I was living in Jerusalem. <laughs> I was living in Jerusalem a good number of years ago. At this point, about thirty years ago, as a young person, as a brand relatively brand new believer, living in Jerusalem in order to study Hebrew for for intensively three months. In Israel, there are these special schools called Opan, and the Opan is where you can go to intensively study Hebrew. So my wife and I were living in Jerusalem. We had an apartment near downtown, and we each day would go and walk and go to the Opan. And then in the afternoon, we'd hang around the city. There's lots to do. And one of the we saw a sign saying, you know, proof that Jesus is not the Messiah. Come and hear this lecture. <laughs> and uh, it was turned out that it was a, a man who was Jewish and arguing against Jesus being the Messiah, and he was doing it in English to attract tourists. And it was only you know, two or three blocks from our school. And so we 
went to the lecture just to kind of sit and scope it out and see who was around and what this was all about. And uh, halfway through the lecture, I raised my hand and I confronted him on a number of points that he had misstated and he was not being honest about. And of course, a very typical Jewish thing breaks out, an argument. (laughs) (laughs) And we were arguing, arguing, and finally he ended the meeting and we kept kept arguing. Finally, he said, listen, I've got to go home. I'm locking up. Please, please go down the stairs out to the Midrachov. The Midrachov is uh, is Jaffa Street. And so a group of us are still arguing. There were people who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so we're winding up in the middle of the Midrachov, which is the busiest pedestrian mall in Jerusalem. It's, it's around nine o'clock at night. It's brightly lit up. All the restaurants have their sidewalk cafes running full tilt and it was quite a scene and now we're arguing uh myself and my wife against these two or three guys uh not in a in a sort of violent way but in in an enthusiastic way and back and forth giving our evidences so finally i noticed out of the corner of my eye an old jewish man with a long white beard and he starts to slowly move toward the center of the crowd and i thought just just to basically hear better and so he was listening and listening and then all of a sudden he says in english and his english wasn't all because the the argument the debate i was having was half in hebrew and half in english at that point my hebrew had gotten a little bit better so i was able to argue a little bit in english in hebrew as well but he he suddenly raised his voice and he said both hebrew and english i have something to say Mm And, and the, the young yeshiva boys, the young rabbinical students, imagined that this old white-haired Jewish man was going to rebuke me, that he was going to put me in my place and tell me it was a, <laughs> it was a shame and a shanda of what I believed. So he, he spoke up and he said, 40 years ago, I was reading my Bible, Tanakh, Torah, and I came to the belief that Yeshua Hamashiach, that Yeshua, Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> as soon as he said that, there was an audible gasp that went through the crowd uh, because they expected him to say the exact opposite. Uh, but he, and people started questioning him, are you sure you're Jewish? And he said, of course, I'm Jewish. I came here as a young man, as a teenager, and uh, I was reading the, the, the Torah and came and saw the verses and so it was a very dramatic moment where I didn't expect any help at that moment. But <laughs> later on, I asked a believer who, who knew about him. They said, they said, yeah, he's legit. He wow. comes quietly to the fellowship. He doesn't speak up much. But uh, at that moment in time, he was an incredible witness uh, to all of those standing there on uh, the biggest pedestrian mall in, in Jerusalem on a very wow. busy summer night. Wow. Lots of tourists and people hanging out, playing guitar and panhandling and uh, sidewalk cafes. And now we're having an argument. Even some, <laughs> soldiers, some Israeli soldiers came over to listen and people were trying to like appeal to the soldiers that they should tell me to be quiet. And the soldier said, no, he's, he's not breaking any law. Wow. So it was a wonderful opportunity to lift the banner of Messiah right. in the middle of Jerusalem. Let me ask you, where were you and who was sitting right next to you that shocked you 
with their belief in the Messiah. Uh, and oh, they, they oh, were in your family. Now, now, now I understand what you're getting at. <laughs> now that's okay. a great story. Yeah, as yes. well. Well, you know, I came to faith at the age of 21. And, um, you know, it took me six months to work up the courage to tell my father that I had come to faith in the Messiah because my father was very skeptical. And when I told him six months after I came to faith, he thought I had joined a cult. And so I had to keep reassuring him, no pop, staying right here in the apartment in Brooklyn. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to continue to work. I was working in a, in a laboratory at that point. I'm going to continue to work there and uh, no changes. Later on, he told me he didn't believe me. He thought I'd, he'd come home one day, I'd be gone. But uh, after a while, when he saw I was more and more responsible, I was paying a larger share of the rent money, uh, <laughs> yeah, 21, 22, 23, wow. and uh, had a decent job. So finally, he said, uh, let me read one of the books from your cult. <laughs> and so I gave him a very, a very important little book that's still available. And now you can download it for free called Jesus Was a Jew. Right. Jesus Was a Jew by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is the founder of Ariel Ministries, A-R-I-E-L. And he is uh, probably best known as one of the, uh, the greatest teachers in the Messianic Jewish movement for, for the last two generations. He is my Bible teacher, and now I co-teach with him. So Arnold wrote this book called Jesus Was a Jew. I gave it to my father. He read it. And he said, give me another book from your cult. I gave him <laughs> a different book. And so after a few months, I said, you know, Pop, that guy, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he's going to be lecturing in the city in Manhattan uh, at a conference for Jewish believers. It's uh, on the Upper East Side. Would you like to go? And so at this point, my father was still working. So we made arrangements for him to to meet me on Friday night uh, at the Upper East Side of New York City, uh, just above Midtown and uh when, by the time we got there, it was already a little bit late. The place was packed. And so we, we kind of did a very New York thing. We kind of, it was, it was a long pew. It was a long bench of people. And so we, we, we got a place on the bench and uh, we're listening and, and a number of people were speaking. Finally, the MC says, between lectures, he says, would all the Jewish believers in Jesus who were here, would you raise your hand? And about one third of us raised our hand. I looked over at my father and my father had raised his hand. And I said, I, I, I leaned over and I said, Pop, he didn't say, would all the Jews raise your hand? Would all the Jewish believers in Jesus raise your, your hand? <laughs> and so at that point, my father looks over and he says, yes. I heard what he said. I came to to believe that Jesus is the Messiah several months ago. And uh, true story happened in, uh, I guess that was probably 1979 wow. or 1980. And um, my father had genuinely come to faith as a result of reading some books by Jewish believers like wow. Dr. Fruchtenbaum and uh, looking at the evidence. And he sincerely prayed to receive the Lord from that moment on my father very clearly and unapologetically identified as a Jewish believer in Jesus. No, he had not converted. We never use the term convert right. to refer to a Jewish believer in Jesus, but rather 
he had come to born again saving faith that Jesus the was the Messiah. And so he, uh, for the next 20 years, held to that. Uh, my stepmother really sat on the fence for all those years. Uh, my mother, my Jewish mother died when I was just seven. Uh, and interesting story, she was involved in a study of the New Testament uh, in the latter years of her life. Wow. But my father um, very clearly expressed his faith. He even defended his faith to a family member who challenged him about it. Right. And uh, when he passed away and, and went to be with the Lord, he had a believer's funeral. Uh, and so uh, it was quite a shock, but it was a wonderful thing that that uh, two years after I came to faith, my father also came to faith. Fantastic story. Incredible ministry. You're also an adjunct professor uh, at Ariel uh, uh, Summer Bible College. Yes. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I like about you, you are a master teacher. You are a rabbi. Uh, the way that you teach uh, appeals to the secular crowd and right. the believer crowd, uh, just, yes. like, just like the teachings of Jesus. Uh, very relatable. He can speak to anybody. He still does. He is real, folks. And you can know him. You can know him right now. You can know him today. Uh, the Messiah has come. And he is real. And he's returning. It's a reality, folks. It's a reality. So thankful uh, that Muddle Bouse has joined us today. And you can see a show uh, which... All this inspiration led you to the name of the show, which is Our Messiah is Jewish. I mean, one of the things that I, that I love about you as well, sir, is that uh, people tend to, uh, w when they want to learn the Hebraic roots uh, and the reality of that, some of them go so far they forget Jesus, but you don't forget Jesus. Uh, you amplify and, and bring into full context the scriptures. Uh, uh, the, the, the old and new covenant, so to speak, but the way that you teach, I love it. I encourage everyone to watch. You go to glc.us.com. Go to the YouTube channel for GLC. Uh, binge watch this brother. Get behind what he's doing. You know, we're winding down in the last 20 seconds. Could you give a blessing in our last 20 seconds, Rabbi? Sure, sure. There is a, a page in Scripture. There is a blessing in Scripture. And it is taken from Numbers chapter 6. Here's the blessing. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panal verecha vechunecha Yisa Adonai panal verecha V'yasem lecha shalom May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. We pray these things in the name of the Prince of Peace, Messiah Yeshua. Amen. You made my year. And GLC viewers, be sure and watch these shows. God bless you, Rabbi. And God bless you. can edit this. And God bless you, viewers. We'll see you next time. A lot of the Southwest.